Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, Pastor Heath speaks to us from Philippians chapter 2. Today's message is entitled, Ripples of the Incarnation. Stay close and find out how you can be a part of Unity. chapter 2. It's that time of the year again, isn't it? Hallmark Christmas movie season, right? I get put through those two. You know, I've heard it been, I've heard it described as 400 different movies, five sets, and three plots. My brother would argue there's a singular plot. <laughs> you know, it, that's Hallmark movies. But for whatever reason, they're wildly popular this time of year. I think, is this like 18 seasons or something of Hallmark movies. I know my wife and daughters love them too, and I've I've watched a few with with varying degrees of enjoyment. But, you know, you watch one of those, you put it in, you kind of know what you're getting into, right? There's a, you got some lady, and she's either a high-power businesswoman, or she's running her own business. She's a, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. She's something. One of her parents are dead, and she's with a guy that she shouldn't be with, right? Mr. Wrong. He's uh, some evil corporate city slicker who, you know, he slicks his hair back, and he wears these, you know, power ties and high-power suits and rides in a limo, and he's talking with her long distance, and she shouldn't be with him. But then somewhere along the line, her business takes her to Mr. Right, but she doesn't recognize it yet because he's just some local country guy who has family values. But eventually, she realizes how great he is and how wrong Mr. Wrong is, she comes together with him, they get in a fight, right, because she's not ready to get with him yet, and then they, in the end, they get married, the cabin is saved, the children are saved, Uh, puppies around the world rejoice, it's, it's a Hallmark movie, and then the credits roll to some nice Christmas music as it advertises the next Hallmark movie, which is just like the one you watched, but you're going to watch it anyway. I've always wondered, what's the appeal of a Hallmark movie? And I think it's this. I think it is in the predictability. You know when you watch a Hallmark movie, your favorite character isn't going to die of cancer in the middle of the movie. It's not going to happen, not in Hallmark. Uh, They're going to find Mr. Right eventually. And you know in the end it's going to finish with a, a, a story of peace, a story of love and goodwill, and you're going to walk away, and you're just going to feel good, and you're going to donate to UNICEF or something, and you just, you're happy. And I think that's what it is at Christmas time. Even if my life isn't full of happiness, cheer, and joy, I know that somebody somewhere is experiencing it. And I just, if nothing else, I just want to be a spectator. I want to watch somebody being happy. And Philippians 2 talks a little bit about, if you know, if you know Philippians, it's called the epistle of what? The epistle of joy. Okay, the entire epistle, if you will, it's sort of a running theme throughout that letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And in chapter 2, we have the incarnation. We know the incarnation is when Jesus took, took on flesh and he came to earth. And when he came to earth like a, a large water drop into the water, if you will, there's ripples. He had this great effect on those around him. And in Philippians 2, the mountaintop of Philippians 2, the very center is the incarnation when Jesus came down. The context, the verses that come before and after the incarnation are the ripples. Jesus coming down to earth, how should that affect how I live today? Jesus coming to the earth, the very story, the very essence and message of Christmas, how should that change who I am? And we're going to study that this morning. And so this morning, we're going, to just, we're going to talk about the ripples of the incarnation, the first one being joy, and some of the causes of joy, and some of the, if you will, some of the enemies of joy. So in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin with verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see, first of all, that there is joy where the Savior reigns, just like the second verse of joy to the world. Joy to the world. Why? The Savior reigns. Let men their tongues employ. A fancy way of saying, let's, let's speak about it, okay? Let's, let's let that change how we talk. Joy to the world because the Savior reigns. Now let's let that change how we talk. That is the very message of Philippians chapter 2. He begins in verse 1 by saying, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, pause there, 
What's he talking about all of this? If there's this, if there's this, if there's this. These are different ways that Paul uses to describe our conversion. He's saying if. If you're truly a believer, if you have been encouraged by Jesus Christ, if you have been comforted from his love, if you have participated in his Holy Spirit, if you have any affection and sympathy that you have received from him, if this is true and present in your life, it should make a difference, right? It should make a difference that Jesus is in me because we're not just forgiven people, the same kind of person but stamped okay. We're transformed. We use the term converted. We use the terms regenerated. It, it, all of these terms indicate a change. So if or since these things have been changed in your life, therefore, he says, complete my joy. Paul is about to tell them how to make them happy as a church. Now, why should this church care if Paul is happy? Paul in the church at Philippi, I don't know if you realize this, they have a very intimate relation, a very special relationship because Paul personally planted this church. On his second missionary journey, Paul went into the city, and as what is his habit, he, he usually goes to the synagogue, the, the Jewish gathering place for religion and for culture, and he, and he reasons with them, but they didn't have one there. So he knew their custom was, if there's no synagogue, you meet down at the river and you pray together as a body of people until you have enough to start a synagogue. Well, there was a whole bunch of women praying down at the river, and Paul started there. And they started a church with just a bunch of praying women. So yeah, never, never look down upon the power of prayer. Just a small group of women praying down at the river started one of the greatest churches of the New Testament. Even from here, the first Gentile convert of Europe, uh, Lydia, was born again through this church's ministry. And on his third missionary journey, Paul comes back through to see these people, and they supported him greatly in his missionary endeavors. And so Paul has an, an intimate fatherly relationship with this church, which is every pastor, honestly. Any pastor worth anything, the ministry is not just a job to them, and it can't be. It's not just a paycheck. It's a calling. And when, you, when a pastor is called to a church, there's a sense of love that he has for every single person who has come here today, okay? And you should have that, which, which means that there are certain things that we can do as a church that brings a pastor great joy. And there's certain things that when they see it in a church, it can just break his heart. And Paul is saying, there is something that this church in Philippi does that brings him great joy. What is it? He says, complete my joy, How? by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, okay? He wants them to be, he, he draws joy from seeing that they walk in truth, kind of like John said in 3 John 1, 4, where he says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children, they walk, they live as a daily way of life, they walk in truth. They're walking hand in hand, if you will, with one another. Paul has this, this fatherly view of the church. Even with our own families, parents, those of you who have kids at home, those of you who have adult kids who come home for Christmas, isn't it one of your greatest joys of the holidays simply that they're in your presence and that they're enjoying each other's company? I love that at Christmas time. My kids come home and they're all adults and they're living very responsible adult lives. But when they come home, they're kids again. You notice that? They're sort of like a, I don't wanna say they go down in maturity, but it's like they can just kind of be a kid again. Mom and dad's got things covered. And they just play together and they chase each other and they, they tickle each other and they wrestle and they poke at each other and they joke and they laugh. I'll be sitting there in the living room and uh, the lights will be out, just the Christmas tree lights on and my, I'll look over and I'll see my two daughters squeezing onto a little piano bench and they're playing this harmonious Christmas song together. And at that point, you can just take a deep breath and you're just involuntarily are praising God for the unity that's in the home. That's how Paul feels about this church. That as believers, because we're believers, that should mean something. It should mean something that we try to live harmoniously with one another. What does that look like? He says, I want you to have the same mind. Now, this is not referring simply to doctrinal unity that we agree on certain doctrines of the Bible. This particular Greek word means an active striving to come to a same understanding of one another. It's a mindset that says, I want to understand what David is thinking. I want to understand things from Jamie's point of view. I want to know what, what Tyler's thinking right now. It's probably a sports game or something, I don't know. <laughs> this is what it means to be of the same mind. It means I have, an, I have a default posture 
that I want to understand things from your perspective. Same mind. And I, I work toward that end. Not to force my will on you, but to help me understand you. He says, also we have the same love. It's that Greek word agape. Okay? It's, a, it's the love of the, of the will. It's a love of choice. It's a love that is based upon who we are. We love because God has loved us. Isn't that what First John says? We love because he first loved us. God loves us because who he is. it's who he is. He can't not love because God is love. And as a Christian, it's supposed to be the same way. We can't not love because God has so filled us with his love. And when God's selfless love fills our heart, it's what pours out. I love you because of who I am. You didn't have to earn it. I'm going to love you. It's agape. He says, so have the same love. And then he says, being of full accord. It means being united in spirit. It literally is the word that means one-souled. It means I no longer see myself as an individual of Unity Baptist Church. We're not just a family that comes to Unity Baptist Church. We see Unity Baptist Church as a singular being. And isn't that how God sees the church? What does God call the church? What, what, is, his what is his name for that? He calls us the what of Christ? The bride. So God, when he looks down upon us as a church and the church universal, he sees us as a singular entity, one-souled. And when we are truly unified as a church, we no longer look at the church as something that I extract something from. I come to church so I can get something from it. I come to church because this meets my needs. I come to church because we're one body and we work together. Some of us are hands. Some of us are feet. You got a spleen. You got a heart. You got a, you know, it, but we all have one head. And we're connected to that head by the Holy Spirit, if you will, the central nervous system of the body that works its way throughout all the body parts to cause us to work together in tandem, in unison, okay? We see ourselves as one, as one soul. So I understand at that point that when I hurt someone else in the body of Christ, who am I actually hurting? Hurting myself. Likewise, when I do good to somebody in the body of Christ, who have I done good to? I've done good to myself. But you see, that's not innate thinking. That requires faith. It means that I trust God when his word says that we are one body, we are one soul. It's the message of Ephesians 4.25 when it talks about, therefore, put away, to, to remove from yourself, put away falsehood. That includes lying, deception, or anything you do to make somebody believe something untrue. Put it away from you but rather speak truth to one another. Why? Because we are members of of one another. And so the rationale Paul gives in Ephesians 4 is the reason we tell the truth to each other is because if I hurt you with a lie, it hurts me too. We see ourselves as one body, one entity, one soul. And for me to do good to you is just as good as if somebody did that for me. That's how we see ourselves. And then he says that we are to be of the same, of one mind. Now, how does being one mind differ from the same mind? Being of the same mind, remember, was that active trying to see things from others' point of view, whereas being of one mind is, is sort of the, the conclusion of that. Now that I've come to an understanding of, of your point of view, we can work together toward one purpose. In fact, some of your translations may have even translated it that way, that we are intent on one purpose. When we see ourselves as one body moving together, when we see ourselves as uh, having the same love, we're loving each other unconditionally, when we see ourselves from one another's point of view to come to a place of understanding, we now can move forward together intent on a singular purpose. When this is present in a church, isn't that just a joy to be around? It's such a joy when you see unity in a church. And it's so discouraging if you don't see it. I was just at Walmart the other day and I was just shopping, you know, doing some Christmas shopping and I happened to overhear a couple of Walmart employees just working out in front of all the busyness of the, of the store and I just heard them backbiting and complaining about their supervisor and just pop, 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 nitpick, nitpick, nitpick. How do you think that made me feel about Walmart? I didn't feel too highly about Walmart at that point, okay? I didn't want to be around them at all. In fact, I kind of just wanted to complete my shopping and go home. Friends, when that same thing is present in a church and people come and they hear people just nitpicking about the church, well, I don't like this, I don't like that. They're just mumbling and murmuring and grumbling. It makes people feel the same way, wouldn't it? That I don't want to be in a church where there's backbiting and complaining and mumbling. It's, it's, a, it's a hindrance to things. In fact, do you know what Jesus' prayer request for our church is? 
If you read in John chapter 17, there's something there called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It means he's praying on our behalf. First, he prays for the apostles who are present with him at that point. But then he turns his attention to you and I. Did you know that Jesus prayed something specific for you? And here's what it is in John 17, verses 20 to 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, the apostles who are with him. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through, uh, through their, uh, their word. Who is that? That's, that's you and me. Through our words, we confess Jesus as Lord. Jesus is praying for you right here. What's his prayer request? He says, that they may all be one. But not one according to human standards, one according to God's standards. He says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. God wants us to be unified as a church even as the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are unified as one. That's God's standard of unity. God calls us as a church to be that unified together. Is that even possible? It is. Because Jesus, in each one of our hearts, the Holy Spirit occupying our hearts, the Father ever-present all around us, gives us the power to unify as he unifies, if we'll let him. If we'll let our flesh get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father together as a trinity push us together into one body and allow him to unify us, we can have this kind of unity. And you know what's really exciting? When we have this kind of unity, did you know it affects our gospel effectiveness? Look at the end of that in verse 21. How does it affect us? He says, let them all be one as we are so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When the world sees a group of people who are different from all kinds of different backgrounds, different races, different ages, different heights and weights and all that, he sees us come together, but we're one unified body. That's a sight to behold. It's not something you see very often in the world. And when they see that, they say, God must be present in this church. I want to hear about the message of Jesus this church has to say because they're a unified whole. Now, if unity increases our gospel effectiveness, what does disunity do? It makes us ineffective. In fact, if you look back at your own church's history, you'll probably see the times where God has worked through Unity Baptist Church in the greatest ways were probably the times you were also most unified. How important is unity, friends? Unity is everything. If we can't move forward as one body, our gospel effectiveness, it's gone. So how important then is that we as individuals behave in a unified way? Friends, when we behave in a disunified way, it interrupts the most important work of the universe. It would be like interrupting a doctor in the middle of open heart surgery so you can discuss why his fence is six inches over your property line. You know, you have this petty little thing that you want to discuss and you're going to interrupt the most important work that man could be doing that day. So when we slander, when we backbite, when we complain, when we argue, when we fuss at each other, when we ignore one another, when there's no unity, friends, we're interrupting the most important work of the universe because I feel bugged. Because I'm upset about some petty little thing that in the future just won't matter for a hill of beans. It's not important. But we're going to disrupt the most important work of the universe because I'm sad right now. Unity, friends, is utterly critical. It's utterly important. But let me, just, let me just say this for a second. I want to brag on you as a church body for just a second. Do you know that even just in the few short weeks we've been here, I have seen increasing amounts of unity among you. It doesn't mean that we don't have people who are upset or people who are sad or people that still need some work to do. It means that as a body, I have personally observed you making intentional efforts to be unified even just in a small way, at the end of services, I don't see people rushing out to go to lunch. It's not just like these are people that, that don't mean anything to me. I'm just headed for my meal. It's almost as if you have something more important than food sitting before you, and you spend time getting to know one another. You spend time going to people you don't know just because you want to make sure there's not people in this church that you haven't shown love to. I've seen you go to first-time visitors, someone you've never met before, and I have seen you introduce yourself. Is that sometimes a little bit nerve-wracking for people? Sure. Do you do it anyway? I've seen it. And I tell you what, when I see that kind of joy in my, in, in my church, I say my church, it's our church, it's Jesus' church, but you know what I mean. When I see that here in our home, you may as well be my two daughters sitting on a piano bench playing a, a melody together. It just brings such joy to my heart to see that. And so I just want to thank you for the efforts that you have been making as a church here uh, in that respect.
Well, if unity brings joy, what is the enemy of joy? I want you to see number two, selfishness is the enemy of joy. He says, do nothing, that's pretty all-inclusive, by the way, do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. The first effect of the incarnation in our life that Jesus has arrived in our hearts and changed us is that we should no longer be selfish, but selfless. Those of you who had somebody share the gospel and they drew a circle and they drew a throne and you used to be on the throne, when you're saved, where are you now? You're bowing at the throne. Jesus is on the throne of your heart, right? And so here, what we're seeing here is selfishness. It's part of the old life. It's part of the old man. It's when we were on the throne. But now that Jesus is on the throne, me, like everybody else, we are bowing to him and we are allowing him to be Lord of our life. And so... Here he says, don't do anything from selfish ambition. This word selfish ambition is a fun word. It means to work for hire. It's a word you would use for a mercenary. What's a mercenary? See, sometimes life requires conflict because there's evil in the world, and we have to defend those who are weak. And those, sometimes you have people fight for honor. They fight for something noble. They fight for somebody else. They fight for a higher principle. But there's other people who fight too, aren't they? They're the guys who want to fight for a dollar. They're willing to fight, but it's for whatever benefits them, okay? That's a mercenary. And Paul is saying that sometimes we have mercenaries in the church. We have people who are people for hire. They come to church, they give their tithe, they do their work because they expect something in return. Now that I have given into the church, it's about time that I get something. I have this owed to me. I have this coming to me. This sense of entitlement in a church, Paul calls mercenary Christianity, and he says, it's selfishness. And he says, this is the kind of thing that will drive a wedge into the church when we're all fighting for what we want. Isn't that what James says? What, from where do wars and fightings come from? Do, come they not hence, I learned it in the King James, come they not hence even from the lust that war in your members? When we are fighting, it's because somebody somewhere is selfish. They want something. They're, they, they're, they're exercising mercenary Christianity. And selfishness, friends, is at the heart of every single sin. James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That's where selfishness leads. Selfishness is the perspective in life that I should be pleased. Who is it that should be pleased at all times, friends? It's God. God should be pleased at all times. So when we have this sense of entitlement that I should be pleased at all times, it's at that point that I, if you will, have put myself in the place of God. And it's not longer so important that God is pleased, but that I remain pleased, that I am served, that my needs are met. This is what selfishness is strictly defined. It's a Burger King way of life. Have it your way. I'm selfish. I want, I want to be pleased. I got to have it my way. When there is no selfishness, or when there is selfishness, is there also likewise joy? Do you, have you ever met any selfish, happy people? Not too many. You haven't met one, I guarantee. Someone who's truly selfish, they're not also truly joyful. In fact, uh, this time of year, you've probably heard already three or four versions of A Christmas Carol. But in that Christmas Carol story is easily the most selfish person of all the Christmas stories. And he's portrayed as evil because he is the very incarnation of selfishness. Who are we talking about? Scrooge, right? He's, you know, this is, Eben, he even has a gross first name, Ebenezer. Sorry if some of you were named Ebenezer, but, you know, he just has this name that just sounds mean and cantankerous. Ebenezer Scrooge, and he only cares about his profiting himself, how things benefit him. He doesn't do anything for anybody unless He's got something coming in return. And he's also the, the saddest person of the story, isn't he? He's never happy, never cracks a smile. Everywhere he goes, sadness follows him like a dark cloud, doesn't it? He walks down the street, and plants are willing, wilting, you know, hair is falling off puppies. Things are just sad, things are happening. You know, dark clouds and, and lightning strikes around him. It's just everywhere he goes, Cratchit gets quiet and sad, and everybody else is quiet and sad. You have some people coming in to raise money. You remember that scene, right? You have a couple of fellas that come in. Uh, the bell rings at the business of Scrooge and Marley. And two gentlemen enter and say, a few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time of want. When it is most keenly felt, an abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? What did Scrooge say? Nothing. You wish to remain anonymous then? No, Scrooge says. I wish to be left alone. 
He's selfish. He just wants what he wants. He says, since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, this is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry either. He says, I help support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there. They would rather die. What does he say? Then let them die and decrease the surplus population. And you and I, we have a collective gasp. (gasps) How could somebody be so heartless, so cruel, so as not to see life from the perspective of those who are suffering? But you see, when he's being selfish, Scrooge doesn't feel wrong or evil, does he? He feels justified. He feels right about what he does. And this is the deceitfulness of sin. Often when we're sinning, we don't feel like we're doing something wrong. We feel we're doing something just or justified. It's right. It's it's good. Those people who are poor, they got themselves into that situation. I didn't choose for them to have all those babies. I didn't choose for them to get that dead-end, no-good job. I didn't choose for them not to go to college. Let them suffer. And that's the spirit of Scrooge. I don't care how you got into your situation. I only care about me. And he is the saddest person in any story. Paul later says, do nothing by empty conceit. It's a word that means empty glory, that when a a man glories in himself, it's, it's truly empty. Or as it's been said, there is no smaller package than a man wrapped up in himself. I just do everything in my life with the intent of drawing glory to myself. I want people to think highly of me. I want to be magnified in the image of other people. Okay, I want to be glorified, if you will. Can a church even suffer from that? That we suffer from empty glorying? How does a church do empty glorying? We're the biggest church in our, <coughs> we're the biggest church in our association. I don't want to point to it too much, but uh, we are. We have the highest baptisms we have the most salvations. We've started four churches. We give the most to, oh, you only give that much? Look how much we give to Lottie Moon Christmas offering every year. <laughs> I don't want to brag, but we do have plaques going back 10 years of all of our giving. Churches can even be glorying, and the Bible calls that kind of glorying empty. What does the Bible actually say about boasting? If you, love does not boast. Let him who glories do what? Glory in the Lord. We don't seek to draw glory to ourselves. The Bible calls that empty. Glory belongs to the Lord and only to him. Joy rather comes from one of the strangest places we wouldn't think of. It comes from humility. It's the opposite of selfishness. He says in verse 3, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility, too, it's, it's not a, a trait that's looked up to in our society, in humility, we have sometimes a false view of it. It doesn't mean that we're self-deprecating. We don't look down on ourselves. that somebody uh, says something about us. We're like, I'm the worst. I'm awful. No, no, no. Save your praise. I'm, I'm, uh, I should be run over by a steamroller if you had any idea of just how awful I really was. It's not, it's not that. In fact, that's not even a theological p- true position because how does God think of us? God places great value on each one of you. We just studied just a week or so ago, God called you his poema, his poem, his workmanship, his masterpiece. That's how God sees you. And so don't look down on and don't run down what God thinks very, very highly enough, highly enough of you that he sent Jesus to die in your place and he knows you by name. So don't, humility is not running ourselves down. Humility is just not thinking of ourselves first. Humility is that posture of life where I'm always looking to meet the needs of others first. I'm looking out for others first. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says to count others more significant. It means we're making an intentional mental effort. It's something he says, it's a conclusion that we come to through careful thought and analysis. I have read God's word and I've come to the conclusion that I should put others first and so I'm going to make deliberate efforts to make that my posture of life to put others' needs before my own. We don't come to that naturally, do we? Are we born that way? If we were to make a nice single file line, make our way down into the nursery, would we find that naturally in our toddlers? We would not, those of you who are parents of toddlers at home. You don't have to teach them to be selfless or uh, to be selfish, do you? Well, Johnny, you really ought to share that toy 
or not share that toy so often. You're always giving away your toys to one another. That's not how it is. Child takes a toy away from another child. That's what it is. And then that child gets mad. And then they start hurling and throwing things at each other. And they're mad and they're screaming. They're throwing themselves down on the ground because they have been highly offended. This is our natural posture of life. And we can even take that into adulthood, can't we? Oh, we don't throw ourselves down on the ground and pound the floor. Um, but sometimes we'll run people over on Black Friday to save 50% on a Nerf gun. We can be selfish too, can't we, as adults? Sometimes, as we always say in our house, everybody grows old, but not everybody grows up. Maturity is not a byproduct of age. Maturity is a byproduct of walking with Jesus for a long time. And so, by and large, a general truism is that older people are more mature. But you have to walk with Jesus to reach that. Otherwise, sometimes we just practice our sin for a lot longer. We get good at it. He says, we consider others more significant than ourselves. It means that we actually view other people's needs as being import, more important and more even superior than the meeting of my own needs. That doesn't come naturally either. It's a conscious choice to obey the word of God, to live that way. It's hard to do. Now, if you ever watch Andy Griffith, and friends, if you have never, it's my favorite show, and so you're gonna hear Andy Griffith from time to time, bear with me. Uh, if you don't watch the classics, you'll never grow. And so Andy Griffith, season one, you have a, a Christmas episode, and it's got a boring title like A Christmas Story, so it doesn't really suck you in, but you have this Christmas story, you have old Ben Weaver, Kevin Nybert knows what I'm talking about, uh, you got old Ben Weaver, he's the Scrooge character of the Andy and Mayberry universe, and he's, he owns the department store, all he cares about is making a buck, and this episode begins, and he's bringing in some fellow, I think his name is Sam Muggins, and his, Sam is a moonshiner, which is a common recurring theme in Mayberry, and this moonshiner is taken away from Ben Weaver's liquor sales, and so he wants Andy to arrest him on Christmas Eve. Well, Andy's not inclined to do that, and he resists that, but then Ben gets in his face and says, if you don't arrest him tonight and keep him here, I, I will go to my state official friends, and I'll cause trouble for you, and you know I can't. So now Andy's stuck. He's got to uphold the law, but he wants to show compassion. So what does he do? He arrests the rest of the family. He puts them in jail together so they can be together over Christmas. And then Andy comes in with the Christmas tree. And then Barney comes in as the skinniest Santa that you've ever seen. You know, there's a little, oh, you know, Barney comes in and you have uh, Aunt B. she comes in with a Christmas feast. And Andy, he gets out the guitar. That's how you have to pronounce it when you're talking about Andy. It's a guitar. And so he's playing his guitar. And, and uh, Ellie comes in and she's got eggnog and there's joy and there's peace and happiness. But where's, where's old Sam? Or Sam Weaver, he's outside the jail, isn't he? He's standing on a box in the cold, in the dark of night, in the snow, holding on to the cold iron bars of the jail, wishing he could just be near this joy that he doesn't understand. Because he thinks joy comes from selfishness. It actually comes from humility. It comes from giving to one another. And that's the, that's the fourth point here. Joy comes from giving. He says in verse 4, let each of you look out not for his own interest, but for the interest of others. This, this word to look out is the Greek word skopeo. You see the word scope. It means that when we look out, we don't just look out for our own interest. Oh, that'll benefit me. Oh, that will look nice on the mantle. Oh, that will help me. Oh, this will benefit me. Instead, he says, we look out for the interest of others. There's someone who's hurting. I want to be there for them. Hey, here's a first-time visitor. I bet you they feel awkward here today because they don't know anybody. I want to make it less awkward, and I want to be friendly to them. You're putting in yourself in their shoes. That's what humility does. It sees others' needs as more important than meeting our own. And so we're constantly on the lookout not to benefit myself, increase myself. How do I do good to others? That's humility. He says it should, it should show itself in looking out for the interest of others, not simply for the interests that, that please me. Instead, I make it my aim to please other people, to see to it that they are pleased. I want to meet their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. It's an it's aspect of love called kindness. I want to meet needs of other people. It's also a fruit of the Spirit, an evidence that the Spirit of God is alive in us. One of those evidences is it shows itself in kindness, that I am always on the lookout for people who have needs, and how can I help meet those needs? It's an evidence that God is in us. 
Back to Andy Griffith, when is it that Ben Weaver found joy? It's when he came back and gave gifts to everybody, isn't it? He found a way to get himself arrested. He just wanted to be close to the joy that's there. And he comes in with an armload of gifts, even for old Moonshine or Sam. And he had gifts for the whole family, and it's the first time in the episode you see him smile. He's finally happy because he's been humble. He's been uh, allowed himself to give instead of take. He's finally happy. And almost to show us that whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Immediately, as soon as he gives it, he starts singing along, and Aunt B shoves a plate of warm, home-baked food in his hands, and Ellie Mae comes by with a cup of eggnog and throws it in his hands, and they're singing together, and joy to the world, and everything is, you know, they all live happily ever after. That's the idea that we should that we should give to one another, we should be humble, we should put others' needs before our own, and when we do, it's at that point that we can smile because there's no such thing as a happy, selfish person. Look at yourself. When you feel unhappy, when you feel sad, it might be that we're focusing on ourselves. Nobody's thinking about me this year. Nobody's looking for me. Nobody looks out for me. Everybody forgets me. Nobody remembers me. I understand your sadness, and it is a sad place to feel like that. But in, you know how to replace that with joy? Start looking for others whose needs aren't met. I feel sad because nobody's noticed me, but who have I noticed? How can I be part of that solution in meeting the needs of other people? At that point, you're going to find that not only are you meeting the needs of others and bringing joy to them, like old Sam Weaver, you've finally got a smile on your face this Christmas. We've learned what it looks like from the ripples of the incarnation of Christ to give to others. So how do we find joy this Christmas? Make sure, one, you're truly a child of God. If you don't have Jesus in your heart, friends, you have no source of continuing joy. You only have temporary happiness, good, thing, good feelings that come from happenstance, just things that happen and it comes and it goes, but it's not daily. We root out selfishness and pride. It didn't work for Sam, it won't work, or uh, uh, Ben Weaver, it won't work for us. But we root out selfishness and pride, not simply by saying, I will not be a selfish person. It means that we actively show love to other people and we consider them more important than ourselves. We look to meet their needs. And the last thing I'll say this morning here um, is, just for a moment, let's look for a second. Remember the message of the angels to the shepherds? His message to them was peace on earth and goodwill to men. I mean, that's, it's, it's a message of God making peace with us. And because God has made peace with us, now we can make peace with others. Jesus said it's one of the true evidences of, of a child of God, that you're a true child of the kingdom. That's what the Beatitudes are. They're descriptors of someone who's truly born again. And we're meant to line ourselves up and say, am I really saved? And one of those descriptors was, blessed are the peacemakers. That your basic posture and attitude in life is, I don't, I'm not just trying to get for me, I'm trying to make peace with other people. I don't just hope it happens. I don't hope they make it right. Well, they'll finally, about time they finally come here and make it right with me. It means that I have a posture of making it right with them. Hebrews 12, 14 says, we are to pursue peace and with all people. He, Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends on you. In other words, some people are still going to be nasty. They're still going to be cantankerous. They're not going to be Ben Weaver. They're still going to be mad at the end of the movie. But as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, everybody this morning should have gotten a little handout. Maybe you've already read it during the sermon. You got bored and you started coloring in the ovals. I don't know. It's called Peace Pursued. If you want to look at that for just a second, we're not going to go through it. This is simply a tool that I'm putting in your hands. All this is, is there's an organization out there called Peace Pursuit, and they make it their goal to try to create peace in Christian environments, missions, organizations, churches, etc., homes. And this works, friends, for all of us in all circumstances, because all it is is a fleshing out of Matthew 18. When I'm mad, refer to this. When I am sad, refer to this. When somebody has hurt my feelings, refer to this. Okay? It's going to give us a baseline of understanding, and where it begins is not with the other person. It begins with our hearts. And friends, that's where true peace has to begin. You know what I've discovered over the years? I used to naively think that if we just preach on unity and peace in the church, then all those mean, cantankerous uh, people that stir up all the trouble in the church, they'll just repent and change. Did you know it doesn't work that way? If you have someone who is 
full of division and dissension and anger, there's one of two things that's happening in their heart, okay? One, they're lost, okay? Lost people are going to do that. And sometimes there's lost people in the church who look like believers. They're called tares. The other conclusion is that they're behaving carnally. They're behaving fleshly. They're living in sin. And sometimes we do that because we ourselves are hurting. Hurting people often hurt people. Okay, so we got to be patient with them. But they have a responsibility to repent of that sin and turn to Christ. And some of that is our going to friends like that and helping them understand there's a, there's a path to joy that comes through not being divisive. Paul even said to the Corinthians when they're being divisive, he says, when you are divided, and I see I'm of this guy and I'm of this guy, I'm of this belief, I'm of this belief. He says, are you not just behaving as mere men? And he means those who are not converted. He says, I can't even give you other things in the Bible because you're still behaving as fleshly carnal. He said, babes in Christ. And so we, it's, if, if this church is gonna be at peace, it doesn't mean that we're never gonna have people who are contentious. There's always going to be contentious people in a church. There will. Satan, even if we got everybody, every contentious person happy, at some point in time, Satan's going to sow some other people in there, and there he's going to stir up trouble and cause trouble. A peaceful church is when the spiritual people of the church band together and choose to behave in spiritual ways. And they learn how to handle contentious situations in a biblical and godly way. First of all, when somebody is contentious towards you, we don't behave contentiously back to them. You don't fight fire with fire in the church. The Bible says you don't return evil for evil, but rather evil with a blessing. So we've got to be patient with them. But what are some things we can do as a church, as spiritual ones, to promote unity? Okay. Uh, for instance, if you have somebody who is, uh, they're coming to you and maybe they're, uh, they're gossiping about somebody, they're talking bad about somebody, well, did you hear? Uh, did you hear about Jacob? Boy, I tell you what. Well, what do you mean? Well, I don't know if it's true or not, but I was talking to Betty the other day, and she told me about Jacob, and, and she just, they just go on, and they talk about this guy. You know, when gossip comes our way, what do we do? We refuse to be gossip kindling. Proverbs 26.20 says, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no tail bearer, right? When we don't allow this person to bear and to tell these tales, when there is no tail bearer, strife ceases. And so we refuse to be kindling for that. So how do we respond if somebody is coming to us and they have negative things to say about another person? You know, maybe it's in the home, maybe it's in the church, maybe it's at your workplace. It works all places. We just say something to them like, hey, wait, just hey, pause for just a second. Have you spoken with this person? I mean, that's Matthew 18. Go to them privately. Go to them alone. Don't tell everybody else. Go to them. Go to the source of the problem because that's what love does. If you truly are filled with God's love, you're gonna go directly to that person because your goal is not to get your way. Your goal is to be restored with your brother. That's what love does. He's, and then we can ask him things like, do you know if this is even true? Either way, even if you have spoken with him, and we have to say this too because I've heard people in churches say, well, I can say this to anybody I want because I'd be willing to say it right to their face. I can say it to you because I've already talked to him. Okay, you're still slandering the fellow. It's just that now it's like you've given yourself like spiritual permission to blast and destroy this brother or sister in Christ just because you've already told them does not give you permission to continue to destroy them. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. When we're offended by somebody, love covers it. We're not, we're not revealing it to others. We're like, you know what? I'm gonna let love cover that. And we point them back to it. Or when discord comes our way, what's discord? Uh, if, I don't play piano, but if I were to go over here on this piano and attempt a chord, you know, when, when, a, when all those fingers, I don't know how you ladies do it, you know, and men that play piano, they get all their fingers to work together as one unit. And when it is harmonious, it sounds like one beautiful song, doesn't it? You get some little kid who's practicing the piano and they'll hit a discordant note, won't they? And you're like, and you don't notice all the other beautiful notes that are working in harmony together now. Where did your mind go? What was that? And uh, get the cat off the piano. Something's wrong here. That's what discord is. It means everybody else in the church, by and large, is working together harmoniously. And when it does, it works together as one beautiful melody. But sometimes in a church, you can get one discordant note. And all of our attention is there because it's so out of step with the rest of the group. That's what discord is. It means when something's happening in the church and we don't like it, and we go up to somebody in the church and we say, boy, I'm just so disappointed. 
well, Mike, what are you so disappointed about? Well, I just don't understand why the church is doing this, why they're doing this, or why they haven't done this. Now, to us in America, we feel like, well, that's my, that's my right to speak freely, right? You know, the Bible, the, the America assures us the freedom of speech, but the Bible says our speech is limited to what is loving. You have the freedom to speak your mind in America, but we have the freedom to speak what is loving in the church. And just simply sharing my discordant feelings about something that's happening in a church, there's a way to handle that. And so if, if somebody's coming to you and they're just sharing, I'm so sad, I'm so disappointed, I don't understand this, I'm upset, I don't get this, what do we do? How do we handle that? As spiritual people, we guide them to the truth. Say, well, have you, have you talked to the person responsible for that? For instance, if, if you have a problem with the music, where do we go in this church? You go to Theron. And when you do, by the way, friends, be nice, okay? Be kind. Don't say, you did this. Ask questions. Hey, I want to understand, okay? Remember, being of the same mind means you want to understand things from their perspective, and you, you approach them humbly, and you do it kindly, and you ask questions. Seek to understand before being understood, okay? So if you have an issue with the youth and you hear about these crazy things the youth do in this church, right? Who do we go to? Do we go to one another and we talk about it? Do we, you know, what do we do? We go to Brad, we go directly to Brad, and we don't tell everybody else. And once we've gone to Brad, do we go and tell everybody else now that I've talked to Brad? No, because love covers a multitude of sins, okay? We, we, we help one another by protecting one another. So you go directly to him, and what do you do? Do you accuse him? Brad, I can't believe you did this. No, we go to him and we say, you know what? I see this happening. I don't understand it. Help me understand. Now we've created love. We've created understanding. You're being of the same mind. Well, what if you have an issue with something the way something financially is, is set up? You go to Dana. And by the way, let me add this. You don't go to Dana for anything else. Dana's not in charge of the water in the church. She's not in charge of the grounds in the church. She, in fact, who is in charge of the grounds? That's Vessi. And when you go to him, be nice to him too. That's all I'm asking. Be nice to people. You know, if your door didn't get unlocked or some fence didn't get unlocked or something is out of place or there's a light bulb out, be nice to the guy. He's doing the very best he can do, and this is a big church. Let's be kind, but let's go directly to the source. When we go to the source, we're seeking love. When we go to everybody else, what have we done? The Bible calls it sin. It calls it sowing discord. I have a discordant note in my heart. I'm sad, I'm offended, I'm hurt, I don't understand something, and I'm gonna take that sad feeling, and I'm gonna go out here, and I'm gonna see if there's fertile ground elsewhere, and I'm gonna take that like a seed, and I'm gonna cast it out there. Biblically, that's what a thought is. The Bible calls a thought a seed. Uh, Paul was called a seed speaker. Um, the word seminary comes from the word semen, which means seed. Okay, so a thought is a seed, and we plant it in the hearts of others and go, I wonder if anybody else is upset as I am about this. The Bible calls that sowing discord. There was a group of people in Jesus' day who did that too, remember? They didn't understand Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. They saw Jesus as in being competition to their religious ideas, and they would go around to all the other Pharisees. Hey, did you hear about this Jesus? Yeah, I hate it. What are we going to do about it? You see, they were cowards. They didn't have the courage to go to Jesus directly, right? And when they did, they were just trying to trap him. Instead, they gathered a posse of people with, with pitchforks and, and torches. And their goal was to come to Jesus under the cover of night and to take him by force. And while Jesus was praying Gethsemane, along came all these people working covertly in the darkness behind the scenes, trying to destroy God's anointed. That can happen in a church today where we don't like something that Brad did or that Heath did or that Theron did or a decision that was made in the church. And instead of having the courage to go straight to that person in love and figure it out, we go around and we sow discord and we gather a posse of like-minded individuals so that we can come in force to force my opinion upon the church. Is that how the church operates? Is that church government? That's not church government, friends. That's a coup. And that doesn't happen in the church. In fact, what does God say about Pro in Proverbs 6 about sowing discord? He says, a worth oh, these are hard words. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And in four verses later, God will tell you exactly what he thinks of sowing discord. 
It's amongst what people call the seven deadly sins, the sins that God hates. And so the idea of me just sharing my opinion in a negative way to cause disunity within a body is something that God calls wicked. It's something we repent of. And, and, and we're not saying here, friends, as a church that we don't share our dissenting opinions. Sometimes dissenting opinions are healthy and good. Can I just celebrate that? What I'm asking for you to do is not to keep everything to yourself. I'm asking you to go to the source. Go to the person who can be part of the solution. Because if we're not going to the solution, to the part of the solution, we're just trying to get our own way by force. And if you don't know who to go to, guess where we go? Starting point, okay? They're going to help point you there. And if they don't know where to point you, guess what they're gonna say? Go to Heath, okay? He'll, he'll know where things are. I've got a list of things He'll know where to take you from there, okay? And this whole goal is to simply create peace and unity so that as a church, we can be of the same mind, intent on one purpose, but it won't happen apart from you and I choosing to be unified together. Will you band together with me to create a loving family that, friends, we all want to be a part of? You have a dissenting opinion? Great. Take it lovingly to the person who's responsible, but I'm gonna ask all of us together that when we receive this kind of negativity, we isolate it, okay? Send them to the source. Let's do that together, seeking love with one another, and then let's watch God as he blows open the doors of ministry and leads people to faith because of our unity. Friends, let's live up to our name, Unity Baptist Church. Can we do that? I know we've gone a little bit long, but I just felt it was so essential that we come to a same place here on this. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that you have given us an example of unity in yourself. That, Father, you and the, the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, you work together in perfect harmony, perfect unity in tandem with one another, even though you're distinct and separate from one another. And you call us to that same measure and standard of unity. Lord, give us the grace and strength to do that, to behave in a godly way, not seeking our own, not seeking for us to be pleased, but to seeking to create understanding with one another, love, and, and, and just allow that commitment that we have to Jesus and the commitment we have to one another drive us to a place where we force ourselves to consider the needs of others as more important than ourselves. May we exemplify that character trait humility that was first found in Jesus Christ. If he fills our heart, God, I pray that that very attribute would fill ours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that this has been an encouragement to you. If you're interested in our gathering times or just want more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Join us next week as we open God's Word together.